Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Before we start, a heads up that today's episode deals with sexual violence. We're learning about disturbing atrocities happening in Ethiopia. That's where a civil war has been raging for over a year now. The conflict is centered in the northern region of the country, known as Tigray. Tigrayan rebels are well-armed and pushing for independence, and the Ethiopian government is trying to stop them. Forces from the neighboring country, Eritrea, have also helped the Ethiopian government quell the dissent. But, as often happens with war, ordinary people are getting caught up in the conflict. Thousands of Ethiopians may have already died, millions have been displaced, many are facing famine, and recently, human rights groups have found that women and girls are being targeted with widespread sexual violence. Thousands of ethnic Tigrans were gun raped by government troops, allied forces from Eritrea, which is so systematic and weaponized. Lucy Kassa is a freelance journalist who's reported on the conflict for the globe. She'll help us understand how sexual violence is being used as a weapon of war and the dangers she herself has faced while covering it. This is The Decibel. Lucy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So you wrote a a piece earlier this year, uh, and in this piece you called the conflict in the Tigray region of Ethiopia a, a, quote, secretive war. Why has it been so difficult for for you and other journalists to to get a clear picture of, of what's happening there? It's been difficult to report on the conflict because the government, uh, since the war started, has blocked all uh, communications to the region. For a certain period of time, journalists were allowed to go into the region and to report from the ground. But since the past five months, all communications are blocked uh, to the Tigray region and also to territories controlled by Tigray forces. So there's no way that we journalists can reach out the people on the ground. And just three weeks after the war started, the government declared the end of the war, and it was saying that it's only going to arrest the corrupt leaders of the regional government. But while the narrative was at that time that the government was taking uh, law enforcement operation against the regional government leaders of Tipele. What was actually taking place in, on the ground was uh, horrific massacres by government troops and their allied forces from Eritrea. You yourself, I believe, were actually attacked in your in your home in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, last February. Can can I ask what what happened? I happen to know about horrific allegations of sexual violence committed by the government troops operating in the region. So when I was investigating about that case of the woman who was gang raped by uh, Eritrean troops, I smuggled out evidences from the region, pictures, and also medical evidence uh, which shows that Eritrean troops were operating in the region. At that time, the government was denying that there were any foreign troops in participating in the Tigray conflict. They didn't want these things to come to light. So government agents uh, raided my house. They threatened to kill me, and they warned me not to dig into the war. And I wasn't threatened by the traits, so I continued my investigation, and I, the story was published two days after I was attacked. This, but the situation was so intimidating and dangerous for me, so I fled. 
What happened after you were attacked? What did you do? I fled at that time in international media organizations like Reporters Without Borders were advocating for me, but the government was in detail. So I needed to flee because the situation was very intimidating for my life. So from exile, I continued my investigation and most of the investigations that I published were from exile. And I, I will just point out that we're not revealing your location for your own safety. What's it like for you, Lucy, then, as an Ethiopian now, watching what's going on in your country from afar? It's, uh, it's really sad to see that these things are happening in my country. It's really sad that I won't be able to go back anytime I want. It's, it's very heartbreaking. You mentioned that uh, the, the reason why you were targeted there is because you'd uncovered this evidence of the sexual violence that was being perpetrated here. Uh, and you recently wrote a piece for The Globe about your investigations here. How and, and when did you first come across what was happening? So when I first heard about these allegations coming from the Amhara region, I uh, established contacts the same way I do with other investigations. And what I find out was so horrific that underage girls were being gang-raped by Tigran fighters operating in the, who controlled the village. They told me horrific stories. Do we know who was doing this? Which troops are doing this? At that time, according to the victims I talked, that time the village was under the control of Tigran fighters. The victims identified their abusers as Tigran fighters. I'd imagine you must have heard stories from a lot of people that you've talked to, Lucy. Is, I mean, is there anything in particular that, that sticks with you? One thing that I want to highlight is that because the government has blocked all communications to the war zones, we don't have full information about what's happening on the ground. We don't know the full scales of the sexual violence and the atrocities and the human rights violations. And there's always a lagging of atrocities. We receive reports of atrocities usually after three or four months after they were committed because of this communication blackout and also because the government doesn't allow independent investigation into the crimes committed during this war. So far from what we have investigated, the most well-documented evidences posed by journalists and human rights organizations, what they suggest is that the most horrific atrocities were committed by government troops and allied forces from Eritrea, crimes that could amount to crime against humanity and possibly genocide. We don't know. The war has, hasn't ended. We are, are now hearing about uh, allegations of atrocities from Tigray fighters. But overall, there is a, a need for independent investigation. We journalists could only manage to uncover some crimes but uh, to know the full scale of the uh, human rights violations, there's a need for independent investigation. You also wrote about how these women and girls, after they've been attacked, they're often unable to get any kind of treatment. Why is it so hard for them to get help? One of the main things is that there is no security, so people are not safe to move around. And also the health facilities are looted and distracted. And there's also shortage of medicines. And there's also focus on uh, war casualties. So because of all these reasons, they are unable to, to get medical help. We've also heard a little bit about the stigma around sexual assault. Is that a factor in, in why some people don't want to come forward and talk about it? 
there's always a stigma that surrounds sexual violence in Ethiopia. So it's difficult for victims to open up about their experience. For example, with regard to a case of sexual violence in Tigray, thousands of ethnic Tigrans were gang raped by government troops, allied forces from Eritrea, which is so systematic and weaponized. What this case suggests is that only few women report their cases because of the stigma that surrounds sexual violence. And also, mostly it's when they undergo torture and physical injury that they visit hospitals and they report their case. In other cases, they keep it to themselves. This may seem like a simple question, but why is it that sexual violence is used as such a weapon of war? From my reports of sexual violence cases in Tigray, what I have learned is that rape was being used to demoralize the people. It was used as a way of ethnic cleansing. So it's been widely used as a weapon of war against Tigran women during eight months. What has the Ethiopian government said? What's been their response to reports of the widespread sexual violence being perpetrated by their troops? So when I first uncovered that story to Los Angeles Times, at that time, the government was denying allegations of sexual violence in the conflict as propaganda and false, uh, as a lie. For months, it was saying that. And in parliament, the prime minister, after so many reports, he admitted that sexual violence has been used, that case of gang rape have been committed in the conflict and that the ones who committed these crimes would be held accountable. But in the same speech, he also said that they were just raped by soldiers. So the pattern is every time there's a a report of atrocity, all parties deny that uh, their troops haven't committed any atrocity. So similarly, the Tigran government has denied the reports of rape. So we've been talking a lot about the sexual violence that's been perpetrated here, but there's there's also reports of other atrocities that are taking place that, that you've written about, including detention and, and the disappearance of people. Who is being targeted here and, and what do we know about what's happening to them? There are mass detentions and people who are being sent to concentration camps, uh, massacred and uh, tortured in uh, Western Tigray territories, which are controlled by Amhara troops and uh, Eritrean troops for the past one year since the war started. Horrific war crimes have been committed on these territories, uh, which could amount possibly to genocide. Uh, Dead bodies were found floating in Sudan. And my investigation has revealed that these dead bodies were coming from uh, concentration camps in Western Tigray town. There were other rounds of uh, mass detention of ethnic Tigrans in the capital city over the months. So every time the Tigran fighters gain a victory, there's uh, a revenge and there's mass detention against ethnic Tigrans who live in the capital city and other parts of the country. So these are ethnic Tigrans in living elsewhere in Ethiopia, so living in Addis Ababa, who are then targeted by the government essentially and, and taken to these detention camps? Yeah, that's the case. And also, ethnic Tigrans who live outside the war zones in the rest of Ethiopia are living in fear. 
there were uh, several cases of mob justice against Isinikti grants uh, in Amhara region. Ethiopia is, is not a stranger to conflict, but uh, in, in 2018, there was a bit of a sense of, of hope when uh, the new prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, was elected. And he even won the Nobel Peace Prize the following year in, in 2019 for bringing an end to a, a conflict with neighboring Eritrea. What did what did you think and what was, I guess, the sense from people you were talking to when, when he was awarded the Nobel? Was, was there a new sense of hope in the country? Yeah, when he first came to power, there was hope. There was uh, optimism among many people that there would be reform. But just a few months after he came to power, the same trains of repression on freedom of expression and political rights started to, to get repeated and the hopes vanished. And now we are uh, in a bloody conflict. Lucy, are you hearing anything? Is like the international community doing anything or other countries stepping up to, to have a say here? No, I, I haven't seen any meaningful uh, action from the international community about this war so far. The U.S. is going to decide if the crimes committed against ethnic Tigrans in the conflict amount to genocide or not. I guess now looking at the situation today, you're, you're closely following the situation. Where is the, the conflict headed and, and what will you be watching for next? It's so difficult to predict, but yeah, one thing we are sure is at this point, both uh, warring parties are uh, only looking for a military solution. So it doesn't look like there will be a peaceful end to the conflict. And the more the war continues, there will be suffering of civilians. That saddens me. There will be more uh, children to die from starvation. There will be uh, so many people to flee from their homes. And there will be... Uh, so many atrocities, and that when I think about these things, I feel sad. Do you think that you'll one day be able to safely return to Ethiopia? It's very uncertain. The situation is very uncertain and unpredictable. But I really hope to uh, for peace. Lucy, thank you so much for your really important work here and for, for taking the time to speak with us today. Yeah, thank you too. Before we go today, an update on another story. For every dollar you spend in children, you save about $18 downstream. But the reverse is also true. If you cheap out on a kid, you're going to pay $18 in expenses later on. So do the right thing. It just makes sense. That's Cindy Blackstock, Executive Director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. She was on the show in November, talking about the federal government appeal of a ruling by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. It found that Ottawa underfunded welfare services for Indigenous kids and ordered them to pay what could amount to billions of dollars. On Monday, the federal government announced $40 billion for Indigenous child welfare compensation and reform. But this money isn't a settlement, and those talks are still ongoing. Okay, that's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Tim and Johnson is our intern. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show, and Michal Stein edited this episode. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pacenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Lucy Kassa. You can find more of her work on Twitter at B-E-R-H-E underscore Lucy. 
You can also email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at RW. And if you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. 